We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. The scripture reading for today will be from Acts 15. And certain men came down from Judea and taught brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of the men should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing conversation of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, who believed, rose up, saying, "It is necessary to be circumcised. Uh, it is necessary to circumcise them, and to command them to keep the law of Moses." Now the apostles and the elders came together to consider this matter. And when there was much dispute, Peter rose up and said. Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God among us, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he had to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God, at the first visit, as he first visited the Gentiles, to take out them a people for his name. Thank God. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord 
thank God, even all the Gentiles who called by my name, says the Lord, who does all things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble these from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely. Judas was also named, uh, Judas was also named Barsabbas, excuse me for thumbing on that, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren. To the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your soul, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us being assembled in one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives. Men who have risked their lives. For the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you would abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. So, when they were set off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brother with many, brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, 
It seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Then, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John also called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take, uh, take with them the one that had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone down with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commanded by the brethren through the grace of God. And he went through Syria, Cilicia, strengthening the church. Thank God for his work. We are privileged this morning to be able to have uh, Michael and Julie Carlisle with us. Brother Michael, please come and share the word with us. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share God's word this morning. Um, I'm going to be preaching from Psalm 100. And you can turn there while I figure out whether or not I want to preach with my glasses on or not. For those of you that don't think I'm old enough to have nine grandkids, well, <laughs> I'm going to prove it. Let's go with not. <laughs> this seems to be a pulpit suited to Pastor Matt, so it will work for me. <laughs> Starts getting a little too far. I want to explain before I preach that I'm preaching, of course, from the New King James, but I've made a couple of changes to Psalm 100. Um, the first one is, for the sake of poetics, instead of make a, a joyful shout to the Lord, I've just said, shout joyfully. To simplify that first line, to make it a little bit more poetic, sound smoother. The last line of verse 4, I've taken out the word, and, the word and. You may have in your text that word italicized, just not in Hebrew. And there's a reason that I have taken the word and out, to make it sound a little bit more joyful and emphatic. Be thankful to him. Bless his name. And then in the very last line of the psalm, verse 5, you have in your text... His mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. And I have changed that word truth to faithfulness. Uh, Amunatha is the word there in Hebrew. It is most frequently translated in the Old Testament as faithfulness. And in all other cases where it occurs in parallel with the word mercy, which is God's chesed, covenant love, it's translated as faithfulness. I don't know why they did it differently here. The word can mean truth, and it can mean faithfulness. But when you think about chesed as being God's loyal love, that's a parallel idea to faithfulness, and this is a Hebrew parallel. And it's going to be very important to the way I preach Psalm 100 this morning. So let's pray before we approach the text of God's word and ask for his blessing. Our great God and gracious Heavenly Father, we bow before you in our hearts and praise you and thank you for what Pastor Matt just explained, that we have 
the word of God in our hands and in our laps, that we know what you have said. And as we try to understand and apply Psalm 100 in our lives this morning, we ask for your blessing and your help. These things are revealed not by a proficient speaker and preacher. They're not revealed by the craftiness of man. They are revealed by the Holy Spirit who illumines our hearts as we hear the word that he inspired. So we appeal to you for help. We acknowledge that we are helpless to understand this text unless you help us. So be with us this morning as we study Psalm 100. Open our eyes to it so that we can know the mind of God, the mind of Christ, that we might be conformed to his image and live for his glory. In whose name we pray, amen. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. And his faithfulness endures to all generations. This psalm is titled, A Psalm of Thanksgiving. And we see in verse 4, it says, Be thankful to him. Did you know that in the Hebrew language, there is not a word to say thanks There's not a word for two people talking to each other to say thank you to one another. You can look through your whole Old Testament and you'll never find one case. Um, In the New King James, the word bless is one time translated thanks. But the Hebrew word, the Hebrew language doesn't have a word just to say thank you. In fact, the word in our text here, both in the title where it says a psalm of thanksgiving and in verse 4 that says be thankful to him, that comes from the Hebrew word todah, which means to acknowledge, to acknowledge what God has done. And it occurs the first time in Leviticus chapter 7. And you know what? In Leviticus chapter 7, it's not talking about saying thanks to God. It's talking about the sacrifice of gratitude to God for what he has done. In other words, the worshiper comes and he makes a sacrifice that's very costly to him. If he was a sheep herder, it would be the firstborn of his flocks. If he was a farmer, it would be the first fruits, the very best fruits of his fields. He would sacrifice that to God to acknowledge what God has done to him. It wasn't a simple say thank you like we do in our culture. It was a show thank you by serious and costly sacrifices to God. Now, later in time, through the development of the Hebrew language, this word did come to be associated with singing and the saying of praise to God, acknowledging his good works. And so that's what we see in in the title. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. And verse 4 tells us to be thankful to him. As we come into his courtyards and through his gates, we are to be thankful. And I'm not sure whether or not the psalmist here intends us to understand to sing praise to God, to sing thanks to God, or to make sacrifices, because both were done. And if you think about it, the ancient Israelites didn't make the long journey on foot with all of these lambs and animals and with all these fruits just to go singing in the temple. They came to make sacrifices, and so I believe they probably did both as they used this psalm 
And, and the way it was probably sung by the ancient Israelites is they would make that long journey to the temple just three times a year. And they would come with that sacrifice in tow and they would have to wait outside the temple until they were invited in by the priests. And as they came into the temple, after being invited in, they would sing, Shout joyfully to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And here's that invitation. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his faithfulness endures to all generations. Verse 3 calls the Israelites to acknowledge the Lord's gracious works in the past as their creator and making them his own people, a people for his own possession. And verse 5 calls them to acknowledge the Lord's goodness, his eternal hesed, his covenant love for them, mercy in our text, and his faithfulness that endures to all generations. The Lord was good in the generation of Adam when he crowned man with glory and honor, giving man dominion over all the works of his hands. And though Adam rebelled, transgressing God's commands, yet God remained faithful, promising to defeat the deceiver through the seed of the woman. The Lord was good in the generation of Noah, after he had blessed man, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But mankind became wicked and filled the earth with violence instead. And though the Lord destroyed the whole earth by a flood, yet he remained faithful, rescuing mankind through Noah and his family in the ark. The Lord was good in the generation of Abraham when he called Abraham out from among those who worship vain idols. And the Lord promised to make of Abraham a great nation and to give his descendants Canaan's land. And though Sarah was barren, yet the Lord was what? Say it with me. He was faithful, confirming his promise to Abraham through the birth of Isaac. The Lord was good in the generation of Jacob when famine threatened to extinguish Abraham's line. And though Jacob's sons sold their own brother into slavery, can you imagine? Yet the Lord remained faithful, saving them all through the very brother that they had betrayed. The Lord was good in the generation of Moses when Pharaoh had enslaved Jacob's sons, but the Lord delivered them by his mighty right hand. And the Lord took Israel out from among the nations and established his covenant with them, and he made them to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. And though Israel complained and rebelled against him in the desert, yet the Lord was unchangeably faithful, shepherding them through the desert to Canaan's green pastures. The Lord was good in the generation of Joshua when he remembered his promise to give Abraham's descendants Canaan's land. And though their enemies were strong, yet the Lord remained faithful fighting Israel's battles and giving them an inheritance in the promised land. 
The Lord was good in the generation of the judges. Get this one. When after receiving the land from God's hand, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And though he often gave them into their enemies' hands, yet the Lord remained faithful, raising up deliverers when they cried out to his name. The Lord was good in the generation of David. When Israel rejected God's rule and demanded a human king, yet the Lord remained faithful, establishing an everlasting covenant to shepherd Israel forever through King David's seed. And so recalling the Lord's gracious and faithful works in generations past, Israel would come to Jerusalem to acknowledge his goodness and eternal faithfulness in their lives through their sacrifices. And as they came into the temple with those sacrifices, they would sing, Shout joyfully to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. And his faithfulness endures to all generations. Psalm 100 invites worshipers to enter God's holy temple through its courtyards and through its gates. Holy places, especially the temple, are accessed by only a privileged few while blocking out the many who must stay out. And that's why temple architecture is dominated by curtains and veils and walls with doors and gates. The privileged few who come into God's presence must be holy and pure, separated to and exclusive to God alone, while everything imperfect, everything impure, everything common must stay out, away from God's presence, because if it comes into his presence, God's holy wrath lashes out against it. The walls of the temple were layered like the rings of a tree in smaller and smaller spheres of increasing holiness and access to God and in greater exclusivity. Fewer and fewer people could go in. Herod's temple at the time of Jesus and the apostles. If you went to it, you would see the largest walled space was called the Court of the Gentiles. This area was a common space. You see the blind, and the, lab, uh, the, li- the, the blind and the lame begging there, people of unwhole body. You see children there. You see sellers there. This is where Jesus overturned the tables. And, of course, you see Gentiles there. And you'd walk through this large court to a wall with another door in it, and behind that was a smaller court called the Courtyard of Women. And sanctified Israelite men and women could both go into that courtyard And you'd walk through that courtyard, you'd come to another wall of an even smaller courtyard. And inside that small courtyard, only whole-bodied, sanctified Israelite men could enter, just the men. And so it was called the Courtyard of Men. And inside the center of that courtyard was a very small building. 
very richly decorated. And that was called the holy place. And not all Israelite men could go into that one. Who could go into that? The priests of the tribe of Levi, descendants of one line in Levi, the Aaronic priests. And inside that building is a veil. And not everybody could go behind the veil. Behind that veil was called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And only one man, the high priest, could go into that area just one time per year to make atonement for the people of Israel. So if we could fly back in time 2,000 years ago and tour Jerusalem... Regardless of how familiar the scriptures are to us, there is no way we could do what this psalm calls us to do. We could not go into this temple's courtyards and offer a sacrifice of praise to God. In fact, we would stand outside in that courtyard of Gentiles, and and these Israelites would go past us. They'd go through that court of women, through the court of men, and they'd make their sacrifices in there. And we would hear them singing, Hario la Adonai kal haaretz, ifdo eit Adonai bisimcha, bo'u lefanav birnana, deu ki Adonai hu Elohim, hu asanu velo anachnu, amo vetzon marito. And we'd stand there perplexed, unable to understand their singing, the words of this psalm, and unable to enter into those gates to give thanks to God. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that there is a wall of separation that kept us out. Because at that time, we were Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by the circumcision. We are without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, though God is our maker too, because of our own rebellion, our own uncleanness, we could never go into God's presence lest we be consumed by his holy wrath like Nadab and Abihu brought strange fire. Through the law of God's covenant with Israel, they could only come near to him just a few times each year and only for brief but joyful moments during which they returned thanks through their sacrifices and songs to acknowledge his faithfulness and to seek his favor. But Hebrews 10 tells us this, that the law was weak, being a mere shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of those things. And that the law could never, with the same sacrifices that Israel offered year after year after year, make those who would draw near perfect. For it is not possible that the blood of mere goats and bulls could take away sin. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is an eternal priest according to the order of Melchizedek, and he set aside the law, weak as it was, and introduced a better hope through which we now draw near to God. 
He has taken away the offering time after time of the same sacrifices which can never take away sins to establish God's will by which we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 10 tells us this, that after he had offered that one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God, having perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And he established a new covenant saying, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. There is no longer any offering for sin because we have been forgiven. And so under the law, only the priests in Israel could enter the, holy, uh, into the temple and only the high priest once per year. But now we, that's all of us, have boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus and by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart full of assurance of faith, holding fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is what? He is faithful. Now we Gentiles, as believers in Jesus Christ, can do what we could never have done before. We can draw near to God and even enter his holy place with thanksgiving, singing, shout joyfully to the, to the Lord, all you lands, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. Now we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and his faithfulness endures to all generations. While we have been sanctified and brought near to God by the blood of Jesus Christ, at the very same time, we identify with Christ's sufferings. We're no longer foreigners to God and his people. No, he's taken that wall of separation away. But Peter writes, we have now become foreigners and strangers to this world. And as he writes in 1 Peter 4.4, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, and they speak evil of you. You've been sanctified, and they speak evil of you. Peter wrote his first epistle to encourage believers that suffering is not the sign of God's rejection. Oh, no. It's the sign that God has chosen us in Christ. And so we share in Christ's sufferings and must suffer in the same way that he did by keeping our behavior excellent among the Gentiles and entrusting our own souls to a faithful creator. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, Peter writes, We come to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, that is to say, a temple, and a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we are no longer kept out of the temple by its walls. No, look, brothers and sisters, we 
are the temple. And we no longer wait for the priest to invite us to come into the courtyard. You know why? Because God has made us the priests. And we no longer offer the blood of bulls and goats. No, we make what Peter calls here spiritual sacrifices. Other valuable things that people in his day understood, like the loss of their reputations, the loss of business, broken relationships because they wouldn't burn the incense to Caesar or worship the family gods. In years following Peter's writing of this letter, some believers ultimately lost their freedoms. Many of them lost their lives in terrible ways. Spiritual sacrifices. And they're still accompanied with songs of praise, acknowledging God's goodness because he has made us his people and the sheep of his pasture. Though we're rejected and persecuted and slandered by this world, Peter writes in verses 9 and 10, but you, you all are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And the reason that God did this for us is so that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not obtained mercy, which so commonly translates the word chesed, God's loyal faithfulness, but now you have obtained mercy. So now is God's chosen people, his temple and his priesthood. We acknowledge God's goodness to us in Christ Jesus through the sacrifice of our own suffering as we joyfully declare his eternal loving kindness and faithful as we sing. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. And his faithfulness endures to all generations. God's goodness, his covenant love, And his faithfulness are eternal, lasting to all generations, even to the very end when God judges this earth through Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 4, John is caught up into heaven by the Spirit, and he sees God seated in the heavens with flashes of lightning and peals of thunder emanating from his throne. And around God's throne are 24 elders seated on 24 thrones, each clothed in white with crowns of gold on their heads. Also around the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature is like a lion, the second one like a calf, and the third one had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. In chapter 5, John says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth 
or even under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and and beheld. In the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, standing as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang out a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. And out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Brothers and sisters, after John sees these things, the lamb begins peeling those seals off of the scrolls, and it's too late. God's judgment has come. And his judgment is so terrifying that men hide themselves in caves and in the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For great is their wrath, and who can stand it? Brothers and sisters, today there is still time. Today, there is still time until God judges the nations through the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you and I were once strangers. God has made us his own people. You and I were far off. But God has brought us near, called us into his own presence, sanctified us. We were profane, contemptible, and God made us holy by the blood of his own son. And he has made us priests to stand between him and the many still living among the nations for whom Christ also died to make them with us a kingdom and priests unto our God. Now is the time for us to return thanks to God, not by merely singing Psalm 100, but on the cost of our own pain and sacrifices to him. We must acknowledge God's goodness through real sacrifices that cost us something. In some cases, the fruit of our labors as we give. In some of us, the cost of our our careers as we go. The loss of family relationships separated from loved ones as we go. Others will endure real persecution for sharing the name of Christ. These are the spiritual sacrifices we must make, and it's the only reasonable way to thank God for his goodness to us. It's the least we can do to show gratitude for all of his goodness to us, and we can do it. You know why? Because God is faithful. We can do it because God is faithful. 
And as we go to the nations, we declare to them God's goodness. We call them to join us in singing our song of praise. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful and bless his name. For the Lord our God is good. His mercy is everlasting. And his faithfulness endures to all generations. Blessed be the Lord.